Hello and welcome to episode two of Breaking Down the Big C, uh, where we'll be hearing from Verity Heslop Mullins. But first, Liz, how are you doing? Yeah, um, I'm all right, I think. I'm a bit frazzled. I've taken a child to uni, um, three new basal cell skin cancers on my back, which I found out last week. Um, apart from that, I'm all right. Just kind of literally hanging there in by a couple of threads, I think. Yeah. How about you? Did you get your results from your scan? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got the, got the results. Um, well, I say I got the results. The oncologist has done his best to read the scans and say... Yeah, all right. You, it looks stable, but he's, he's still waiting for the uh, radiologist report to come through, and it's taken over a month. Wow! So, uh, hopefully. so far, nothing, nothing nefarious is popping up and like no, showing no, his face as doing anything no. major. No, no spread, nothing like that. It's just, it's uh, just sort of putting his hands in the air and saying, to the best of my knowledge, that you know we're stable so no more treatment yeah. for a while so we're all good but mine are quite simple because mine are just going to be cut out so i mean basal cells they are non-melanoma skin cancers so they're not going to kill you mm. again it's just just one of those radiation damage things but yeah so i'm just waiting for an appointment to have those three chopped out next so what uh, what are, what are they going to do with that are they, is it sort of like just on the top of the skin are they just yeah, cutting yeah, around them it's, it's just cutting they just literally just cut them out and just a couple of stitches normally i only have one done at a time so i'm not looking forward to having three done at the same time but there you go radiation no. it's the gift that just keeps on giving now i can imagine they're uh, yeah they can be quite sore i suppose and uh, obviously it's September, which means it's Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. So there's a lot of talk about childhood cancer. Mm. Hence, I guess, choosing our guest for this week being Verity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, more on that uh, to come. <laughs> um, huge also thank you to everybody that has listened to the first episode and given us some feedback. It is exactly what we needed. You know, it, just to get some people saying that we've helped means that we will keep on doing this. So, yeah, no one, you're not rid of us yet. We're not, we're not giving up. <laughs> we're going to keep going. Definitely. And we've even... got some really exciting guests lined up, haven't we? Oh, we have. We, we are absolutely inundated with guests at the moment. Uh, the more the merrier. So, don't let that put you off. Get in touch if you want to be on the show. We are always looking for guests. Um, yes, always. And today we even made it, I, I've not heard of these before, I must admit, but a tweet came through from Sindiness. Uh, right. Yeah, and we are their podcast of the day today. That is fantastic. It is. Not that I had a chance to do that, I've been too busy driving to Wales and back. I'm driving <laughs> to Wales and back. <laughs> I'm never going to Wales again in my life. <laughs> no disrespect <laughs> anyone from wales no disrespect to wales wales is beautiful it was just very very far yeah. away it's, yeah i can imagine because you're you're what east east of the east, country yeah, it was it's a four, been a 400 mile round trip wow i, I say wow <laughs> i say wow yeah. but i was a, you know being a hgv driver it's a drop in the ocean so exactly I'm, yeah I'm it's smiling still <laughs> So, as I said, it is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, September. 
and I thought the best thing to do with that would be to bring on our lovely friend Verity who I actually met because we both have similar late effects we've both really struggled with the late effects of treatment however I was 14 when I had my treatment and Verity was under two if I remember rightly um, so yeah Verity tell us what happened what, what's your story so um yeah I was 20 months old when I was diagnosed um, and I was the third child um, and essentially, you know, mum's had two kids before, kind of thinking she knows what to expect and then I just started complaining a lot when I was walking. Now, you know, I could have just been a lazy kid. I'm kind of a lazy adult, so that's fine. But, um, you know, it, it got more and more so that I would cry, I wouldn't walk very far, things were getting a bit odd. It took four attempts to get me diagnosed, unfortunately. Um, oh. Yeah, four attempts. The A lot oh. were co coming down to kind of um, hip dysplasia, you know, things wrong orthopedically they were looking at. But mum and dad just didn't feel that that was right um, and actually accessed private um, healthcare through my dad's work to try and just see someone else. And they said, take her to hospital. We think this is, you know, serious. And a few scans later, I was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma. Um, I wow. Had, yeah. So, yeah. Um, stage four. I never knew it was stage four. Yeah. So stage four, um, obviously not, not great. So stage four being at that time, there wasn't a stage 4A or 4B which there is now, they've recategorized neuroblastoma. Um, but yeah, so there was a, a large, very large tumor and it was, in, it was growing on the right-hand side of my spine attached to my spinal disc, but it had started in the adrenal gland, which is like a little hat on top of your kidney. Um, and so I, the treatment I had was quite significant you know this was 1989 1990 I had lots of chemotherapy you know kind of vincristine and and all the good ones um and 20 rounds of radiation 10 to the front 10 to the back I also had um surgery to remove the tumor and an autograft of my own bone marrow so they took it out um, saved it and then put it back in after um, chemotherapy so I was able to use my own bone marrow. Um, Is that to help kind of regrow um, what they've taken out? Yeah, so chemotherapy um, essentially nukes your bone marrow. It gets rid of all the good stuff as well as all the bad stuff, which is why it's so horrendous. Um, you know, it's essentially poison into the body it's made of metal cisplatin is platinum um not know that <laughs> there you go um, that's, uh, that's, cisplatin is one that i've i've had and i never knew that at all that was carboplatin so yeah and i didn't know that either yeah, every day's a school day well. yeah um so when you think about it like that you know they're putting all these horrendous chemicals inside a two-year-old um it's going to wipe out all the good things as well, which is why you get very immunosuppressed. 
So they were able to kind of um, put that bone marrow back in and start the regrowth of all the good things and all, you know, all those um, bits of the the body that can help to heal, um, essentially. So that was kind of, in a nutshell, that time. That actually only took, it was 11 months from um, diagnosis to everything being done and kind of the end of treatment, which I think is really fast. Um, That's good, yeah. Knowing that, you know, seeing what kids nowadays go through, it's, you know, a couple of years and it's so drawn out, whereas I think they just zapped me, cut me, and kind of got rid of me. Um, not that I've ever I think been... back then it was a case of cut it out, blast it with everything we've got and cross your fingers. That was it. There was no... Because late effects weren't really a thing back then, um, The you know, the survival rate wasn't good enough to see what would happen 30 years later to somebody, you know. Um, now they know. So I think they've tried not... You know, tried to kind of have a nicer approach to treatment. Um, there's obviously that balance of, you know, is it going to work if it's a bit less harsh? Um, but, yeah, you're right, absolutely. It was new kit, get on with it, pump whatever into, yeah, and and hope for the best. Do you remember anything from your treatment, just out of interest? I remember... Um, a couple of sort of images in my head. So I have an image of the children's play area at the playroom on Ward 15 at uh, Jimmy's. I have an image of these kind of dancing sunflower uh, ornaments that had like um, sunglasses on and you press them and they kind of danced. And then I have a memory of and this is the one that gets me the most kind of a negative memory. Um, what I called pink gas. And it was the to put you to sleep, but it came through a pink tube. And I can mm. smell it. And it used to be in lots of hairsprays and the similar smell. And not recognizing it back then, but absolutely PTSD as a seven-year-old freaking out because I could smell this smell, not knowing. Just going, it's pink gas. The last time you smelt that, you woke up and you were hurting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I was scared. You know, I was on my mum's knee. I remember that bit. And I was kind of kicking, you know, trying to, as kids do, they, they kick out and thrash out. And then that was it. So they're the only only memories I have, really, of that time. So when when you were shown the door, essentially, you were chopped and treated <laughs> and shown the door, How how long did you then take before you got back to normal or as as what you perceived as normal i've i've never had a normal right so i don't remember anything that i don't have a before and after cancer it's been my entire life you know yep it, i know that one it, it, it's so it's you know there was nothing i have no memory of my life before this happened and i actually mm-hmm. um have been exploring it lately um in terms of that didn't feel like it happened to me it happened to my body and then my consciousness came in later 
Um, but in terms of ooh, returning to normal, there was problems from the start. Although, you know, obviously kind of the uh, the, it, the disease had gone, you know, the, there was no more cancer as such. But, you know, learning to walk again, I had to learn to kind of walk and build that strength up. I was being taken in a pushchair to reception class. You know, wow. that and and then my first operation on my so I had um a lot of damage to the nerves to my left leg, um, which started turning my foot inwards. My foot's smaller as well, it's about three sizes smaller than the other one. Um that's gonna make shoes shopping awkward. <laughs> plus it's just well that that left foot is knackered. Um I've just had my sixth operation on it. Um, but the first one was at five. And I had the old school calipers as well. You know, oh, nice. I know, right? NHS standard issue, leather top, metal yeah. down the sides, rocking it, looking well. It's just that thing to make you stand out at school. Yeah. Oh, and, um, you know, NHS shoes. I had some Piedra Hopper boots. What lovely. Yeah, orthopedic boots. Um. So it's that, you know, there's there's never been kind of a time where there hasn't been something going on. And actually, it's just multiplied and accumulated and none of those things have gone away. There's just been new things coming. You know, this is all late effects of the treatment, all late effects of the treatment. Yeah. And if they, if there's a symptom that I go to the, you know, go to the GP with and then I get sent to a consultant they can never find any acute reason and they always just go you know what it's probably down to your chemo it's probably down to radiotherapy it it gets a bit concerning because you you know I, I hope that they're not just saying that and taking the lazy way out mm. but you know that that's what it is and that's what it's been every time I think that that can be really quite frustrating as well because you never really get those definitive answers and it kind of comes down to that, well, we think it's probably linked to your treatment as a child. But there's, there's never that kind of definitive answer, is there? No, and I think as well, something that I really sort of kicked off about a few years ago at hospital was, you know, the, the communication back then, and I'm talking, you know, again, I'm talking 1990, communication with families it was horrendous my mum has told me and, and been extremely emotional about the fact that there was no health visitor follow-up she was left with a child at home with a hickman line you know radioactive nappies with the yellow bins because of oh goodness. And, and there was there was no at home i was two hours away from the hospital you know we lived in bridlington the hospital was in Leeds, the yeah. two-hour drive. And my mum doesn't And two other children to look after as well. Yeah, and a full-time job for my dad. Yeah. So, yeah, it, that communication, they just assume you've been told things. So, you know, why I've, I've had all this pain with my back for 30 years, and it's, I mean, that's a whole other story, sort of. Um, but there's a whole muscle missing, and no one told me that until I was about 19, and I directly asked, what is this hole in my back? 
oh, you've got a muscle missing. It's probably from radiotherapy. Do you not think I should have known that by now? <laughs> yeah, that was my one with my, did you know you had radiation damage to your lungs? No. Oh, we hoped you would have. <laughs> yeah, have you been tested it... for hepatitis C from your blood transfusion? No. Oh, yeah, I had that one as well, yeah. 20 years late. Yeah. Thank and, and that is the thing, I think... Back then, you, children just weren't expected to survive, so these things weren't put in place because they were never thought they were needed. No. It, it, you know, I mean, the the survival rate for neuroblastoma nowadays is is terrible, really low. Um, so back then, I think it was just more or less a death sentence. And crikey, she survived. Let's see if she gets to five years. You know, then that was the big one. Oh, you've made it five years, so you're probably going to live. Um, and then, and then they just, you know, you're a, you're a piece of research ongoing. Always have been, which I'm quite happy to be. You know. I guess it's, you're helping. I was just going to say, I, I guess it's it's knowing that you're helping future patients by being that part of research because you are that anomaly that has outlived expectation. Exactly. You know, to be here at 33 and they didn't expect it to be, like you say, and, and, you know, I'm quite, I'm a bit like Liz, I'm quite happy to say things when I don't think things are right and ask the questions. And I want it to be better. I want I want other people's stories of them getting to the age of thirty three to be mm. better than than mine has been because it's been horrible. Yeah, we, we need to start hearing of people coming through that have had that support all the way through, not the ones who are having to three decades later be fighting for it again because they've kind of fallen through the cracks. I've got to say on that respect, I do think my follow-up has been better than yours, Liz. Um, I've always been under the oncology late effects clinic at Leeds. Um, I was seen twice a year and then it went to yearly. Um, I'm still seen yearly. And they are a great um, way of accessing all the support that I might need. Um, you know that if I want if I'm concerned about for example my back um they got me in to see the surgeons again they got me in to see um endocrinology when I was struggling with um my hormones and really worried about my fertility they got me into all of those services so I have had that follow-up that's brilliant to hear and, and I know a lot of people haven't and there's a dedicated late effects clinic you know and but it's still been a fight it's still been that assumption it's still been a lack of communication because they told my parents and you know my parents forgot because they were hearing that their child has cancer and they were picking out the really really important bits like is she gonna live you know not the she's you know she's got a painful back it might solve itself all right. Yeah. It hasn't. 
For you now then, with um, what what are your all late effects at the moment? You know how it's affecting you these days, and has it? Would you say that it's got worse as the years have gone on, or is it stabilised, or what? I would definitely say not to be a negative Nelly or anything like that, but yeah, it's got worse. Um, like I said earlier, it's that cumulative effect that things if you if you get diagnosed with one thing it doesn't disappear or you just get another one the next year um so actually I was writing down a list of them today for something at work and it's it's things like my immune system's pretty rubbish um from the bone marrow transplant but also the the chemotherapy you know going through you um I've got general sort of health concerns like um, high blood pressure. I was diagnosed at 19 because your kidneys are, um, are the things that make your blood pressure uh, that kind of manage it. And so they were struck with radiation. So they've been a bit damaged. Um, I've got palpitations in my heart. Again, chemotherapy. I've... Um, been diagnosed with premature ovarian failure which oh, essentially wow. is you know early menopause the age of 24 I got that lovely diagnosis um but again it, it, it's due to radiotherapy and chemotherapy all you know as a as a woman you are born with all all your little eggs in your ovaries and at two years old if they get blasted with radiotherapy they're not going to fare too well so there's all the hormonal things that go alongside that so I felt like a middle-aged woman at the age of 25 um and then there's the musculoskeletal which has been kind of the main thing for me my back is I mean I say it's shot but because so I've got scoliosis um and lordosis so scoliosis is the kind of s shape of your back Lordos, this is the other way around. So your your spine curves in towards your belly button at the bottom. Um, and that's because of the muscles, muscle atrophy at the bottom of my back caused by radiotherapy. Um, so a lot of my muscles didn't grow properly and shrank on the one side. So that's caused that because the muscles aren't there, they weren't there to hold up my bones and keep everything straight. Um, and because more, your whole body's got to go through growing sort of through into puberty and things like that but with that with all that damage in place exactly so my hips are different heights they thought one leg was longer it's not it's just my hip is at different height um obviously my foot and it's turning inwards it being smaller um i'll, I'll go back to my foot in a second because it's a good story um but more recently it's been my back and that's been the it, it. I was at the gym. I like to go to the gym, and I'm a gym bunny. I do like it, and I bent over. I didn't do anything wrong. I just bent over, and it felt like someone had snapped an elastic band across my back. I thought, oh. dear lord, something's gone wrong. And it was. It's turned out to be something called arachnoiditis, and that is a um. Yeah, I know. It's a it's a pain a pain disorder in the arachnoid layer of your spine. Right. So you've got different bits of surrounding your spinal cord, and it's the arachnoid layer. And it's 
all the nerves have fused together and clumped um, at the root nerve. So they've. I know that you know we've spoken about radiation fibrosis before. It is. It is sort of. It's. It's. They've become um, stuck together. Everything and... just becomes a hard, sticky mess where radiation has gone near it, and when you've got soft tissue and nerves and things like that involved, it just clumps together, and they just can't work properly, can they? And and the surgeon said, look, we can cut it out, but when you when you do surgery, you create scar tissue. So essentially, yep. you're just going to cut out scar tissue to create scar tissue, and it's not going to work. So this is unfortunately something that was brewing for 30 years and has finally just pinged um so i have so the the nerve pain in my leg has been unreal for the past sort of 18 months um and i've gone through a lot of kind of got up in my pain meds and you know increase and increase to kind of the top and They've been discussing a spinal cord stimulator to try and um, kind of put an internal TENS machine in. Um, is that someone's cat I can hear? Yeah, <laughs> that's my cat. I'm going to remove my cat while you're talking. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's this pain disorder, and that's what has really, really affected me over the last 18 months. Um and that's all from radio radiotherapy. Wow. But that so what's so from when you you felt that elastic twang, shall we say? Mm. Uh, sorry, I'm not very good on the the technical no. terms when I've just first heard them. Pretty um, sure that's the technical term to be honest. <laughs> so what's how's that left you feeling physically since that that moment you know have you carried on going to the gym or is that just not possible since that's happened or it's been really frustrating um I my mobility was impacted such a lot um and I think as well with lockdown it kind of happened at the same time um so obviously we Mm. kind of couldn't go to the gym but I couldn't move. I mean, I couldn't move on that day. I was lucky that I was there with my husband because he actually drove me home. Um, and, you know, I went to the doctor and they give you naproxen and send you away and say, there you go, you'll be fine with a bit of painkillers. Um, but no, it's taken 18 months to get to a place where I can walk for 20 minutes. Um, and that, I can walk for four minutes without the pain becoming like an eight. But I'm so used to pain that you just get on with it and you walk the rest <laughs> at an eight. But the unfortunate thing at the moment is um, I've actually started losing feeling in my leg and it, uh, like I've been sat on it. You know, when you're in assembly <laughs> and you lose your feeling, it's becoming like that. So I've had a lot of scans and I'm still waiting on results. Um, and I've also had to, which has been a long time coming. It's taken me a long time to get here, but I've been forced to use a walking stick when I need it. I was going to say you've got a quite funky walking stick, if I remember rightly, haven't you? I do. I've got two. So big shout out to Neo Walks in York, who the she she makes these acrylic walking sticks, and they're beautiful. And I've got a clear one 
and I've got a one called Laser Lemon, which is essentially like highlighter yellow um, acrylic. And it's having to use a, a stick has not been my ideal. Um, but this has kind of pushed me to use it when I need to, other times not. Um, and there's no shame in that. But, you know, this internalized ableism that I hold kind of says, you know, there shouldn't be any shame, but somewhere inside you there is a little bit. And I, I guess think, sorry, carry on, Tom. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I guess when you've had so much to deal with, you try and hold on to that that last little bit of uh, independence that you've got. And when you've got to walk with a, a walking stick, you, you sort of feel like you're giving in a bit. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm a big thing about control. You know, mm. a lot of us who've had such big, you know, something so big happened to them at so young, a lot of that control was taken off you. You never had that control. You never had a choice. You never had a say. So actually clinging on to any tiny bit of control. And I'd, I felt like I'd, over the last few years, sort of reclaimed control over my body. I was strong. I was lifting weights. I did a Tough mudder, which I never imagined I could do. You know, it was hard. And I, all those physical things I was battling with, but I did it. And then this came along and it just felt like all in one go, I was back to kind of square one and being this very disabled person without control over my own body again and yeah that's a huge issue i think um you're so right in that one with the control what happened to your foot i want to hear about your foot story (laughs) so my foot you know because i haven't had enough happen to me in my life obviously yeah obviously so it was 2002 yeah two or three i had an operation um to a bit more sort of corrective surgery um and it just something wasn't right and it was hurting so we went back to um brid hospital to the a and e that was there it isn't now obviously um and they took the pot off and said yeah you need to go through to hull so i said all right can i just just for for anybody there pot is what they call a plaster cast on your leg Yes. I just had to interpret the Yorkshire speak for everyone. It was called. I didn't realise that was a dialect thing. I just actually yeah. thought they were called. A yeah, it's just it is something I noticed in Yorkshire. Everyone calls it a pot. Uh, All right, it, yes. I must admit as a Midlander, I have never heard that before. See? There you go. Fair enough. <laughs> um so yeah, my pot on my leg. Um so they took it off and said, you need to go to the, back to Hull. So I was with my dad. I was 13, I think. And I said, right, so are we going in the morning? He said, no, you've got to go now. I was in my school uniform. I was like, oh, my God. So they took me through and they admitted me for two weeks. I had contracted post-surgical MRSA at the height of the superbug um, oh, era. So essentially... The MRSA had got into the top of my foot onto a scar um, into into the surgical incision. And it started to, I mean, you know, we're talking about medical things. I'm sorry if you're grossed out, anybody listening, but 
it ate the top of my foot. It, wow. Yeah, it's pretty gross. And then, so a lot of antibiotics, six months of antibiotics. I was on um, syringe driver antibiotics in hospital. Um, I finally got some clothes that weren't my school uniform, um, which was nice. That's always good. Yeah. And um, so I had to, like, wound care at home at 13 on my own, you know, with daylight and, and dressing it every day. But when it healed, so essentially it, it, it ate to, it was about, I'd say, a centimetre and a half deep by about five centimetres wide, square wow. really, on my foot, essentially the top of my foot. And when it healed, the skin pulled in from around the, you know, from the outside and it contracted my toes back oh. into like a hammer shape. Yeah. But the surgery, what the surgery had done was to break my toes and reset them. So essentially these broken toes got contracted and reset into a wrong position. Oh. So the last two surgeries I've had have corrected that corrective surgery. Did they have to re-break your toes again? Yeah, I've had them broken three times. Oh my goodness. I've got a nice big metal rod down my big toe. And I've had care wires put in um, on the last ones. They're the ones that you kind of put in. Your bone sets around and then they take it out and you, your toes are set um, nicely, which they have done and they look beautiful. Um, but, yeah, you know, you're just thinking as if, as if this has happened. Yeah, it's almost like you just can't make it up. It's like, you, you know, you've been through so much. It's like, what, more? But in a yes, in one way, but then you think, well, I I wonder how somebody else would have dealt with this. You know, I am so used to dealing. This is my every day, and and eventually that wears out, and I have a big meltdown, and I have a slight breakdown, and I have more therapy, and you know, it's a big wave. But you think, I wonder how someone else would have dealt with this. I think I dealt pretty well with it because you kind of just get on with it. I was going to say, I think I think when you're so used to that kind of stuff, it's almost just like, okay, next one. But just out of interest, do you ever sort of sometimes have to remind yourself that not everybody's life has been like this? Because I know for me, sometimes when I'm explaining things to people, they'll look at me quite gone out and then I'm like, oh yeah, not everybody's been through this. Because I just think everybody's life has been like mine, or for you, you know, everybody's kind of dealt with this much trauma in their life. And when you remember, realise that actually there's a lot you've been through, it's quite, it's quite an eye opener. With people's reactions, sometimes when you tell them, and you know, I'm quite blasé about telling people, you know, this because it's my life. Why should I be, you know, anything else but blasé? They're, they're shocked, and 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 then I find it hilarious that that they don't know about things that have just become my normal life or I find it hilarious my husband hasn't ever had surgery what do you mean you've never had a general anesthetic yeah <laughs> you haven't lived yeah, what, what do you mean you've never had stitches yeah. oh god that's exactly. just normal but yeah. like I've only had ever had one stitch that wasn't full surgery and that's when I had a tooth taken out. You know, I've never like cut myself and had to go to A and E and I've stitched. I've never it. broke a bone. I always no. just said, I always wanted to fall over and like break my arm or something. I've never broken a bone in my life. 
Exactly. I had, um, I've only had a hairline fracture from when I fell out of my friend's loft when I was little. But, you know, that's kind of really boring. And But yeah, I do have to remind myself and people always say like, oh God, if, you know, if anybody else had half of what you deal with, you wouldn't be at work or, oh God, I don't know how you stood up and well, me neither, but I am and yeah. I don't have a choice but to, you know. Because yeah. we can't change it. Nothing we can do is going to make this any better. And, you know, I think once you realise that it's, it is, you know, the effects of the treatment and it's going to be ongoing, you've just got to keep taking each day as it comes. Absolutely. I mean, what's the what's the choice? Get into bed and cry about it. You know, it's not going to change the past. It's not going to. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes that is absolutely needed, and I will sob my heart out and just feel really bloody sorry for myself because life's been shit. And you know, but you have those moments where you stamp your feet and you just say, "Do you know what? It's not fair. It's so not fair." And I've had this recently. I mean. I'm quite open. Obviously, it can't not affect your mental health. Um, and recently, I've had some more counselling. And just for someone else to say, you know, actually, what you're telling me is just not bloody fair. It, it, why have you had to deal with all of this? You know, why not share the wealth? <laughs> I'm sure someone else, you know, can deal with a little bit of it instead of me. But no, it it, it does feel so unfair. And, you know, like things that, I want to achieve or do I'll never have that and you know I'm a social worker by trade um and I like theories and one of my favorite theories is um disenfranchised grief and it's recognizing grief that isn't normally recognized um so things that you the losses that you will never have or um not normal you know have a normal childhood <laughs> things like that or i've you know i'm i'm not able to have children i won't experience that and it's these i won't experience a normal life because my life isn't isn't normal and 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 it's never going to be because you know you will always have all of this going on and i think that is that that grieving for what other people have and you'll never have Massive grieving, and I think that's really, really important to kind of acknowledge that there are a lot of losses. You know, okay, we've gained experience points, um, I'm sure, and we've lived more lives than you know most people. But the losses are huge, and that control is a massive loss, um, and choice, and and just you know, just normal things like being able to walk around without being in pain or being like we were saying earlier I've lost my ability to stand at gigs which is the biggest thing for me absolutely biggest thing yeah because um so both because I was living up in Yorkshire up until this summer and both me and Verity love Frank Turner he's amazing and uh, Frank Turner was doing a show and of course I saw it was in Hull straight away come on we're going it's like, no, actually, look where it is. It's an out, outdoor arena. There's no seating. Neither of us could go because we both, we both knew that neither of us could stand through it. And then I ended up having an MRI instead. <laughs> <laughs> and that's you just know, life. And then, yeah, because they did actually change the venue then to somewhere that was seated. But as it worked out, it just wasn't going to work out. But it was that thing of, 
Ah, oh, Frank Turner's playing. Brilliant. We can sing along. We're not dead yet together. Oh, no. Hang on. No, we can't because we'll be too busy going. My back hurts. I need to sit down. Can you, should we sit on the floor? Can we get some seats? Uh, actually, do you know what? Let's just go. Yeah, we, we're not dead yet, but we're, you know, kind of halfway there. Crikey. I <laughs> feel that some days. <laughs> Might as well be. Um... That's why I thought it was really important to get you on as well because... You know, it's all it's all very well me talking about what's happened with me, but people need to understand it's not just me. There's 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 hundreds of childhood cancer survivors out there who are dealing every single day with the consequences of the treatment that saved their lives, and and that's a really hard thing to kind of get your head around. I mean, I all I I look back to when I was first diagnosed, and when I was thirty two, I thought. You know, I've got months to live. You know, this is totally unfair. And I, I looked at people in the street and thought to myself, you know, I, I just felt jealous that they looked so happy. But then the more you live with it, the more you see other people that, like yourselves, have had it since childhood and have had to deal with that. And you sort of start to get that. I, I, I can't explain it. You just sort of... You feel sad, but you realise that somebody's worse than what you are, and then you feel like you don't feel jealous at other people anymore. You feel sad that people have had it worse, if that, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that does make sense. I, I know, I, I get what you mean, because you start to realise that actually there, there's, there's some people that have, say, been living with it for a very, very long time, yeah. You know, and and that. And, I mean, for me, personally, um, getting in touch with Verity and meeting her, I don't even know actually how we found each other. I'm not I sure. I think Instagram. it might have been Instagram. Yeah, yeah it was, wasn't it? <laughs> but just suddenly realising there was somebody out there who'd been through something similar to me and got it was just, yeah. it was huge. Because for that moment, we will always say this, and I'm sure it will get said on every episode, Cancer is the loneliest place in the world, but when you find mm. one person who just understands a little bit of your world, it makes your world seem very much less lonely. I know for yeah. me, meeting up with you was huge because it was like, mm. oh my God, there's somebody, you're still the nearest person to be like me. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially there's no networks when we were young and connecting like they do now, which is great. You know, I'm not saying don't have them. Um but there wasn't anything for us. And so actually social media and and finding, like you say, when, when I found you, I was like, holy crap, someone else, like 1989. And, you know, this is unreal and, and you're still alive. And then, you know, we were on some of the same sort of Facebook groups and I started to realise that actually, yeah, we have a lot in common as, as well as actually having a lot in common in the real non-cancer world, you know, yep. and having a dark sense of humour always bloody helps. So, oh, it does. <laughs> you know, and I will say, Tom, you know, I, I get that feeling sad because you see that other people might sort of kind of have it worse or have had it worse. But at the same time, you are absolutely allowed to feel, you know, kind of look at people and feel jealous because I do that all the time. I have done that. I've thought, like, why should you have a normal life? You know, these are kind of normal. They feel horrible at the time, but they're normal feelings, like mm. a bit of resentment for for them 
not having to go through what you've gone through because yeah. there's but no that, rhyme or reason for it. It, it, it it's you it, it just happened. Yeah. I guess that sadness comes into the fact that you know I've had the a childhood I've had a brilliant childhood I've been brought up to do so many different things and it's sort of in my 30s where cancer's come on but when I, I, I listen to your stories and it's you know you've not had the, the sort of childhood that I've had you've you've had a traumatic childhood and that's where it sort of, it breaks my heart a bit that that it's happened. Uh, In the same breath, I will say, and I would imagine that you will agree with me on this one, Verity, but we don't actually know any different. That's the thing. We don't know what it's like to have a normal childhood. I have no recollection of my childhood before cancer and I was 14. Obviously for you, you were only 20 months old. So, you know, we know no different. This is the only life we've ever had. Mm. It is that, it is hard. Yeah, it's weird. That's where the sadness comes in because you don't know any different. Mm. You know, you, yeah. But I, w- I will say as well, um, you know, it, it has... I don't know who I would be if I hadn't have had cancer. You know, and they say, oh, it makes you... Sh-, you know, some people will go with the whole line of, oh, you know, it's made me a stronger person and that's great for them. It it has made, I think, probably, I don't know for sure, it has made me a stronger person. It's definitely made me into the person I am today. It's made, I think, my family into the people they are today. And we've got a really close-knit family, you know, couldn't have done all of this without them, especially kind of as we've got into adulthood, me and my two sisters who are both older than me, um, you know, have been so supportive and, and accepting of all of, just what's going on and it's sad for them but at the same time they don't know what it's like to have a, a, a childhood without a sister who's going through all this and it's sad but it, at the same time it's normal mm. and it's it's normal for you isn't it it is and you know like I said before I'm a social worker it's it's kind of a bit what drove me to work in in that area and it it definitely influences especially the work that I do at the moment a lot with health so it influences me in a in a positive way that I am able to relate to this and understand a bit more about it without making it all about me if that makes sense I think it does yeah I think it does and um it it can actually bring quite a lot of positives to your life which is it sounds like a real kind of weird thing to say that but I would I would agree with you on that. You know, it does make you who you are. And there's a lot of things about me that I know I wouldn't be like if I hadn't have had cancer. Yeah. Wonder who I would be, but I I don't know who I would be. But actually, it's brought so many positives into my life as well as the negatives. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of positives. Um, and there are a lot of negatives. You know, obviously. Um, but it's it's my life and it's made me who I am and it it is sad and it does get sad like I said I have those big kind of times where everything is just overwhelming and horrible but I've really enjoyed the majority of my life you know and having to make it what it is and kind of getting on with it and being normal living this normal-ish life yeah. with all yeah. that alongside it um 
it's just a management issue. I think admin and things like that take up a lot of time and that's uh, hospital admin and all that lot and kind of, yeah, rattling around with your backpack full of painkillers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I, like looking at what you've got to do and working out how you're going to pace yourself through it to make it. Yeah. And getting back to the normal things that I enjoy, like going to the gym, it's been difficult with, I have really, really bad chronic fatigue and it's just pacing myself. And especially in the last couple of weeks returning to work, I was off work nine weeks for my surgery. So it's just really, you know, a lot to do all at once, trying to get to the gym, trying to get to work and try to be normal again, but actually having to think you can't do it all at once yeah i know that's that's the big thing isn't it kind of actually kind of the difference between wanting to do it all and doing it all and kind of reminding yourself that actually you're gonna have to have some leeway on this because not all of that's gonna happen yeah definitely but i think kind of having this so there's a long time where i didn't especially as a child i hated the word cancer couldn't say it you know couldn't hear anyone talking about it and it was a weird phase I say a fit because it, it came quite late on like in sort of you know eight nine ten maybe um and then quite secretive not wanting to tell people about it and then especially when when I was diagnosed as kind of having this premature ovarian insufficiency e.g e. early menopause um that was quite shameful and now I've kind of learned that actually I, I need to talk about this. And I think especially since we've met, you know, it's really important that people hear that it's, it, yes, it's not normal, but but it's your normal. And we've got to talk about it. We've got to talk about cancer at any age, you know. Yeah, I know absolutely. I know you've lost people. I've lost people in my life people that I was in hospital with or people that, you know, from those small networks that my parents knew that lived similar, you know, or that we went to the Lake District with the hospital um, with Click Sergeant and uh, one of the people that I met there, one of the, the lads who are, who's, was the nephew of one of my teachers, it was a weird link, but then found out years later that, that he died. and you, you know, th- this is the reality that, you know, we're trying to create this life and live with all these things. And then suddenly it hits you that, okay, there's like five of us and there's me. No, that's that's it. Um, and that's really scary. But I suppose if we talk about it and there's other people out there scared, also scared, we can all be scared together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is. It's like taking away the power from it by making it you know bringing it out into the open and sort of saying yeah you know what it is really frightening because because it is I think as you get longer on and we see you know when we see more people with late effects and more issues and you just start to think what next and it does sometimes feel like you spend your whole life running kind of from the inevitable but um yeah, yeah. It, it can be a really frightening place and especially say when you have something that happens that gives you a real reality bites moment I mean, I've often described it as kind of the sword of Damocles hanging over my head. Like, when will it fall? It's always there. And you kind of taught, not taught, but when when you go to 
what I call clinic. That's what it was called when we were little to the oncology clinic every year or whatever. You know, they would talk about secondary cancers. It's a, a little bit like you're going to get cancer again. That's how it felt. You know, as a, as a young person, a teenager, talking about, you know, I'm trying to figure out being a teenager, for God's sake, and who my crush this week was and oh, what, whoever was saying this about whoever in the toilets type thing. And then I'm going to hospital and they're saying, so in a few years time, you're going to get cancer because you've had radiotherapy. That's what I heard. And And for me, it hasn't happened. So I'm just waiting to think like, when will it happen? <laughs> and I guess, uh, so I guess um, when I got my lung cancer, that must have been a real kind of hit for you because that's that's somebody you physically know who had radiation at the same time as you who then has developed a secondary cancer. So I guess that must have been quite hard to kind of, because that would have brought your situation back into the forefocus of like, well, shit, if it happened to her after 32 years, you know, it can still happen. It's like, right, I'm 31 years this year, so is it going to happen this year? <laughs> you know, is it going to follow the same time scale? Or or am I going to just kind of get the more kind of broken internal bits of, uh, you know, more spinal issues? Am I going to get that instead? And you know, yeah, It's not going to kill us. It's just going to mess us up until we're two, like, crippled old ladies trying to drink our cups of tea and eat our cake in a cafe somewhere. I'm just waiting till I get sectioned because it's all just got too much <laughs> and it's just it's just this this weird like I say like dark humor that if you don't laugh about it you will send yourself into into a spiral um yeah definitely because it's kind of the accepted thing something will happen at some point and it has done you know all these different things that I've been diagnosed with along the way that might be it. You know, I might never have cancer again, and that's great. That's what I want. But, you know. It's always going to be in the back of your mind, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Have, have you ever received any sort of mental, uh, mental health help to, to deal with that, that sort of ticking time bomb? Um, yeah, so I've been under mental health services on and off since I was about 13 since it started really showing itself um so kind of depression um and that sort of low mood um and then when I was so oh I've had lots so I'm trying to think so it's your GP services or your cams I suppose there was at that time and then I have accessed support from um the queen center at hull for a little while um, they're fantastic there yeah they are um i had to leave them because actually when i started my social work degree in hull i was working alongside them at placement uh in a in another organization but they linked in and so it was, it was quite hard um but that was around support of whether i should have the investigations into my fertility so it was kind of um do you want to know or not you know the tests and and because if I hadn't had the test of, about my fertility then um there was always still hope or would you rather know and it's quite it's a big decision so it was around that um 
I did have the test and obviously they came back with the results that they did. Um, But then I had some really good clinical psychology when I was living in Cleethorpes. Um, So I'd finished my degree. I was diagnosed with the early menopause um, a few months before I finished my degree. I was on placement. Um, Everything was go, go, go. So I don't think I really processed it. And then it all sort of came crashing down. You know, I was living away from my parents, um, working my first job. I was working in palliative care, which is a massive passion of mine and, and was a dream job. Um, but it was hard to see. And there was that kind of thing of, Tom, a little bit like you were looking around and you were jealous and there were lots of people that seemed to be pregnant and and it was that was the big trigger for me of this unfair it's unjust and and I did have a some really good clinical psychology input and it was based on um two it was based on the narrative approach so me telling my story because I'd I'd to that point never really sat down and told my story to somebody and then acknowledge it and go do you know what that shit your life has been utter crap but you've done really well and that's kind of what I needed to hear and the other bit was acceptance and commitment therapy which is like a new wave of CBT um so I I can't really go into it because I don't really know enough about it um but it, it, together it and I had to <laughs> had to apply for some more funding to get me more sessions because I was a bit too broken. Um, but he did. Do you know what? He was amazing. Um, if he ever listens, Dr. Tom Clark, who worked at Scunthorpe, absolutely saved my life at that point. And there was a moment when I, it was weird, I went to see Elbow. And it was one of my best moments in life. Guy Garvey held my hand and sang at me. And it was the oh. most beautiful <laughs> moment. But because of this work, I was able to enjoy it. And it was like a breakthrough moment. Um, and also, that then when I broke up with my horrendous boyfriend at the time, I was able to deal with it a lot better because I wasn't kind of placing all my eggs, so to speak, in that basket, you know, my life. Of, mm. um, and then I have had counselling since. And like I said, this year, very recently, um, but again, that was through the IAPT service, you know, your general sort of um, GP, local mental health. But I haven't been able to access any more clinical psychology. Um, and this is something that really frustrates me because I'm not a newly diagnosed person and I am not terminal. And those are the remit. And when you've got poor mental health, being told that, oh, I'm sorry, you're not dying and you're not newly diagnosed isn't, isn't good for your mental health. Um, because at that point, you know, and it sounds really horrible and I don't want people to think bad of me, but, in, you know, at that point you're thinking, hang on, newly diagnosed people have support from X, Y and Z people. You know, there's all the people on the ward, there's Macmillan, there's, you know, whoever, whoever. And, and for terminal people, I agree. Lots of counselling should go there. I believe in people having as good a death as possible. But it made me feel like I didn't matter. Because, 
Oh, you're in remission. You're a survivor. Hear that word? People might use it. People might like it. I despise it. I don't use it myself. But that's what I was classed as. So essentially, it's over for you. You know, you've done it. You should be fine. Get on with it. Crack on. And, and that's that thing, isn't it? It's that, but you're, but that was years ago. You should be all right by now. You don't need that. Why is it like, actually, no, that? we need it more than anybody. Because there wasn't mental health support happening. back then. Yeah. No. I, mean, I know uh, I've mentioned in the previous episode about charities like Maggie's that are there for anybody that is going through or has gone through, but it, it it's still not the same because you've physically got to go and seek out the help. Whereas I think it more should be done from the NHS side of things where they, they offer you the help, whether you've gone through it or going through it, more needs to be done to understand people's, people's mental health. It's just, it's just not thought of enough. It's, it's such a shame. I think because, um, we're in that situation where sometimes I, I don't know if you agree with me or not but sometimes you're up and at it and you're like right today I am going to fight my corner I'm going to get all the things that I need but there's other days where your mental health is absolutely pits and the last thing you want to do is start phoning up and having to almost say to people I do deserve this I do need this because as soon as they say oh you know you've been in remission you you don't don't need this now you're like oh, okay I don't count and that can actually send you spiralling, as you say, just even worse, can't it? The down, yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's mentally and physically exhausting. You know, I'm exhausted every day from dealing with and thinking of and being in pain. Pain is exhausting. Um, so, yeah, to then having to, like I say, some days you have the energy, you have that mindset of I'm going to do this and I'm going to get somewhere. But that energy doesn't last long enough for the referral to go through or people to phone you back or, you know, and, and they're, oh, well, you need to go through the right channels. You need to go through your GP first and then you need to go through IAPT, and that, which has been great. And then you need to go through this, that and the other. And you think, I can't be bothered. I cannot, I haven't got the mental energy to deal with all this because I've got chuffing mental health problems, you know. It, you can't get to 30 years plus su- survivorship, uh, remission, whatever you want to call it, and not have some sort of mental health problem. If there is somebody out there, I would like to meet them because <laughs> it would be amazing to find out, you know, depression, low mood, trying to figure everything out, anxiety, PTSD, males, like I say, and just... The thought of going through certain wings of hospitals, I don't know why, I can't tell you why, but it, I just, it, it's horrible. And it sends me into a bit of a crazy, weird state of mind. Um, but it, there's nothing, there's nothing. Oh, you've accessed it once, so you should be all right now. You can only have however many sessions. Especially when you're dealing with ongoing physical health problems that are consistently getting worse and things like that. And and you know, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, all these ongoing health problems are a direct result of that, of the treatment that saved your life. And you have this kind of thing where you have to sort of say, yeah, yeah, I am so grateful for everything that happened and everything that saved my life. 
But that doesn't mean that my life isn't pretty shit right now because of the stuff I'm going through because of that treatment that saved my life. And the people who then turn around and say, but you're alive. Piss off. Yeah. <laughs> but, you're but you're alive. Live my life for a couple of weeks and come back to me on that one. But you're here to tell the tale. That one always amuses me as well. No, go away. Do you know what I mean? That's ableism bullshit. Just because you're alive as well. Have you got nothing to moan about? <laughs> exactly. You know, we've all got it, but... Just, as I say, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why we wanted to start this up is to get people to share their stories, to show people that every story is different, everyone's affected differently, and and also all the other things that people have no idea come. And, as, and if somebody listens to this, hears your story and just thinks, oh my God, there's somebody else out there like me that gets it, that will make such a difference. Or just that education of someone who who's not not doesn't know anybody that's had childhood cancer or you know cancer of any type I don't think there's anybody but you know hasn't got a direct um experience to go for that education to say oh my god I didn't actually realize that there's people out there who who and this is what people deal with or you know didn't realize that that's what happens with radiotherapy didn't realize that's what you know, I didn't realise this platinum was made of platinum, that type of thing. You know, that it, it, it's so important and education through experience is so, through other people's experience is so important. And I think you're doing a great thing. Thank you very much. Just, uh, I like, I didn't ask Liz this question, but I like to ask it anyway. If you were to look back at your two-year-old self as you are now, what would you say to them? Bearing it, thinking that the, your two-year-old self would be able to understand, yeah. what what message would you like to uh, to convey to? Ooh, first one would be hold on tight. It's going to get rough. Um, yeah. I think just uh, it's quite easy to say, but there's. There's going to be times when you're going to question whether it was actually worth it, you know, and, and times where you really feel that it, you wish you hadn't had that yeah. treatment, you know. But actually, despite all of that, the journey is going to lead you to a place where alongside the negatives is such positives you know I've got an amazing family I've got an amazing husband and I've got I forged a career that I absolutely adore despite it being horrendously difficult <laughs> um so despite all that there are massive positives but at times it's just not going to look like it and you and that's a, it's okay it's okay to think that everything's going to shit and there will be some horrible times. You know, there's going to be some times where you're just going to want to end it all. We've been there. We've been there twice. Um, but it is it is worth it in the end. I say in the end. At 33, <laughs> in the end, yeah. At 33, so far. it's <laughs> So far. To the current day. <laughs> yeah, to current day. But it is going to be shit. And just hold on, hold on yeah. to everybody tight. 
I think if I was to look back at my 14-year-old self, I know exactly what I'd say, and it would be, it's not your fault. Because that was my yeah. biggest thing, was I always believed it was my fault. So it's interesting actually thinking about that and going back to when you were originally diagnosed, yeah. Yeah, that, that fault thing, I, I, I went through a, a period of thinking it must have been my fault, and then it was my fault that my mum and dad went through it. It was my fault that my sisters went through it you know they wouldn't have done if i hadn't had cancer and they'd have lived happily ever after but it, yeah that's really hard i mean obviously 14 and 20 months is a completely different sort of uh, cognitively i just didn't i wasn't there to to even have those thoughts about it but yeah just a bit of a guide as just bloody hold on tight strap yourself in it's a crazy ride <laughs> Well, I'm bloody well glad that you're still here because uh, it's been great having you on here. And I really, really appreciate you coming on to tell us your story. Um, it's We just want to educate people on, as I say, every different type and everyone's story is different and how it affects people is different. I love it. I love it. And I, I, th I think, it, like I said before, it's so important and, and it's getting all those different views together. I think it's cracking. And thanks for having me on. <laughs> no, we are absolutely privileged to have you on. And from myself and like Liz has said, thank you very much. Absolutely my pleasure. This episode, in keeping with the Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, we've decided that our featured charity will be Candlelighters in Yorkshire. Now, Candlelighters provide support to up to 150 children who are diagnosed with cancer each year in Yorkshire. They provide support not only to the child, but to the entire family, siblings, grandparents, parents, because cancer doesn't just affect a child. When it, when it hits a child, it, it affects everybody. Um, so they have a support office in Leeds, which is one minute from the Leeds Children's Hospital called The Square, um, which has so much to offer. They do parties for siblings. They've got support workers there who can talk to anyone with concerns. You can go and donate if you want to do some fundraising for them. And one of the other things they do is they provide for the children's wards at the hospital dinner ladies, play leaders, social workers, days out for siblings, days out for children. They're really just trying to do anything to keep the impact of cancer from being too big on a child and their family. Now, I'm really glad that we're covering Candlelighters because Candlelighters have supported Verity throughout her entire cancer diagnosis. They're actually celebrating their 46th year of going this year, so well done on that. And uh, Verity's dad was actually the chairman of the Bridlington branch of Candlelighters at one point. So there's a real close connection to the family. So I'm really pleased that we've been able to really just shine their light out there. Um, they also have a home from home called Candlelighters Cottage, which when you think if you're a child who's diagnosed with cancer in somewhere in Yorkshire, there's a good chance you'll be going to Leeds Children's Hospital. Now, if you live 100 miles away, You've got to be travelling back and forth all that time. So the option to have a home from home where the whole family are there, where family life is still going on as normal. Yes, you might be in a different place, but it's just so much less disruption. Siblings can be with both parents. Parents can stay there. 
you know, it just really, those sort of things are invaluable to a family when there's cancer involved. Um, so yeah, this is our charity for this episode is uh, Candle Lighters in Yorkshire. They have lots of easy ways to fundraise. You can go on their website, which is candlelighters.org.uk, I think. I'm just going to make sure that I'm right on that. Yes, candlelighters.org.uk. And um, they've got a shop, so you can buy things on there. There's links to how you can volunteer for them or to offer your support. So if you're in Yorkshire and you're looking for a small independent charity to support candle lighters, go and have a look at them because they offer a fantastic service and they can make a real difference to the impact of a cancer diagnosis on a child and their entire family. And that's so important for moving forward.